Whatever you do, never look into the mirror in your dreams. I, that's how I've lived my entire life. That's what my daddy told me. That's what his daddy told him. That's what it's, his daddy told him. It's what this podcast has always stood for. Carl oh, yeah. Simmons. I mean, I think it's, it's central to uh, both of our belief systems. Never look into a mirror in your dreams. And it's, it's just refreshing to see something in the popular culture reflect yeah. those values. Yeah, it's the only philosophy that was ever taught in my school. Nietzsche, no chicha, <laughs> is what the te- the teacher wasn't very witty. That's all on the teacher. That's on the teacher. That's on Mrs. James. I think that was her name. Ayn Rand, more like I'm not reading this crap, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> More like Ayn Randy Pitchford. Oh. Oh. Oh, this took a turn. I I mean, my stomach took a turn. Okay. Right. After ignoring the concept of that unholy alliance, uh, I'm imagining them getting married and, and Ayn Randy being their couple's name in celebrity magazines like Heat. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> I mean, just first of all, there's a bit of an age difference, I know. <laughs> That's one way of putting it. Yes, and so I'm. Just it's a... one of those January December romances. <laughs> that doesn't quite work, actually. That would make them a month apart. I mean, I know it's not literal. It's more like dog years, but for marriage. <laughs> I'm just well. I I I'm picturing it as now as a more of uh, an Ayn Rand's last dance kind of. You know, she grew up in an Indiana town, had a good-looking mama, but never was around. Died in public housing, and now she's being <laughs> fucked by Randy Pitchford. Oh my god! <laughs> we can do Randy's. <laughs> <laughs> Incidentally, we've just come up with a better movie plot than Alone in the Dark 2. <laughs> A.K.A. what the fuck? It's certainly more cohesive, albeit maybe more derivative. Yeah. Now, I cannot, and I apologise to the view. God forgive me for this, but I can't really give you any criticism of the movie because I I if I say I didn't watch it that would sound too harsh I watched I had it on but I think whoever made it is like a Nosferatu from Vampire the Masquerade and for some reason maybe they're ashamed of it they used they, obfuscate on obfuscate on yeah. yeah like like I, I forget which level I mean they'd have to be very old, very advanced. Like we're talking, probably like the advanced uh, disciplines. Like yeah, like an antediluvian, it. maybe. Yeah, like like I mean, maybe something a little under that. But I mean, I mean, I don't want to get into. Vampire, oh, oh so, so, so just like a Methuselah here. would probably would make, yeah, yeah, like a fifth yeah. Gen. Just enough ob ten an on elder. it. The, yeah. the I mean, it might be ob ten. I don't know, um, mm. but. Either way, I couldn't concentrate on it, is what that one-off sentence of a joke that we dragged <laughs> out, kicking and screaming. Um, anyway, uh, 
I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't focus on it. It is a a film that sort of challenges you to focus on it in a lot of ways. And it doesn't help, like... I want to say it was a hard movie to watch. And when I say that, it's not strictly limited to its content, which, yes, makes it very difficult to watch. It was actually challenging to carry out the act of watching this movie. (laughs) I, I foolishly, I didn't think it would be this difficult to find a copy of the movie to watch. It is very hard, yeah. Like, I thought, oh, this is a a, a shitty B-movie. I'm sure Amazon has it or it's on Hulu or somewhere and I'll just stream it. And then a couple of nights ago, I go to do that and I'm like, oh, crap, it's fucking nowhere. And I wound up finding a stream of it somewhere that was like 240p, blurry as hell. Um, and, and that the first time I watched it was like that and I couldn't just, I just couldn't make anything out because the film's use of lighting is, um, use of lighting is maybe a charitable way to describe it. I think that the person who designed the lighting for this movie, their day job is doing the lighting for carnival haunted houses. (laughs) It's nothing but bad strobe. That's yeah. it. And if it's not that, it looks like a lot of uh, like outdoors daytime shots in maybe natural light. Mm-hmm. Or at least it's... like made-for-TV Hallmark-style lighting. Very just shit. Right. So, and, and because a lot of the movie is dark also, like low resolution just does you no fucking favors. And a lot of the characters are, uh, several of the characters are kind of beefier white dudes, or two of them at least. And that was confusing. The whole thing was just a mess. Thankfully, I I was able to track down a version that that was clearer. And it, I mean, I don't know that I understand the movie any better, but at least I could look at it. Um... So shout out to Riley, thank you for help. But um yikes. I uh you know, I I ordinarily pay yeah. for the for the pleasure. I, I would have paid for it. I would yeah. happily well not happily, but I would have paid Amazon for it or I, I would have loved to have gotten it on a subscription. I that's always my go to. I, d- I didn't have time to get it on DVD. Yeah, that's ultimately what it came down to for me. Is yeah. that like I couldn't I couldn't even overnight it. And and that's ridiculous too, a little bit to overnight. I it. mean, I should when I remember uh, like four in the morning this morning. Yeah. I should be able to press a button on my phone, not even type in. It's four in the fucking morning. I can't be fucked. Right? I should just be able to press a button on my phone and it's there on the screen. Big A, press that. They know what I want and give it to me by four ten AM. Well, I think I think the reason for all of this is that, uh, and I think you're right, I think it probably does have a sort of supernatural element, although I'm not sure necessarily if it relates to vampires. It could just be that Alone in the Dark 2 is one of the 13 films that that girl from Blink, uh, the Doctor Who episode with the Weeping Angels, um, 
it might be just one of the 13 DVDs she has in her collection. So it's really only meant for her. <laughs> and that's it's why about it's about a witch, I think, right? <laughs> yeah. All that did was make me Google because I remembered that it existed. All it did was make me Google pictures of the Todd McFarlane Movie Maniacs action figures <laughs> that were made for the Blair Witch. Oh, yeah. This weird fucking, one of them looked like the Evil Dead, like a deadite. Mm-hmm. Uh, with an axe or a pickaxe or something, I can't even remember now. Uh, and the other one was like a a dryad, like some sort of tree folk. Which thing. that's totally an alone in the dark thing. Like yeah. that's that's the villain of the first game. And I think wasn't that ultimately the villain in the first movie? Was the tree? I think uh, they did that I again. Completely vanished from memory. The first one. Uh, oh yeah. Yes, that was I think another, that's another issue. One Thank I God to this watch. isn't an actual like proper sequel because I remember <laughs> nothing of the original movie. Yeah, I don't even think that would have mattered anyway. Um, no. it, there is a dramatic change from Christian Slater's character. There um, is. There is. It's a different uh, different performer. Yeah. Um, instead of Christian Slater portraying Edward Carnby in this film. And Carnby's the only consistent element, I think, between them. But even he is not consistent uh, yeah. or is less Maybe consistent. Maybe he's like James Bond, so he can be played by different actors all yeah, the time. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I, I'm or thinking. Doctor Who. Right. Well, because... that, that brings us back to what I was saying before we were recording. Right. And this is a treat for all the spin-off Doctor's Movie Boys fans, right? Um, get this. Imagine if... Uh, Scott Bakula from Quantum Leap. Quantum Leaped into the Doctor. Uh-huh. That's ludicrous. Right. Because the Doctor keeps changing bodies. So if he's just done that, just regenerated, Scott Bakula will look in the mirror and go, whoa. No, he says, But oh, he doesn't boy. even realise he's different twice. It's, Doctor well, he, Who's got one over on him. Fucking now, hang on. Idiot. He'd say, oh, boy, but what would be the Doctor's catchphrase? Because the Doctor always gets their catchphrase at this point, too, or at least relatively soon thereafter. Oh, I guess what one of the twists would be he looks in the mirror and says, oh, boy, and then he's second in command, whatever it is at that point. Um, I know, <laughs> Dean Gaffney just uh, looks at uh, the Doctor and says, oh, you found your new catchphrase, I see. <laughs> and from then on, the doctor, he doesn't realize why to he, say, oh yeah. boy, and he's stuck with it. And he, he never doesn't knows. realize why he got bottlenecked the, into it. Oh my God. The doctor's in the waiting room with Ziggy and, <gasps> and yeah. Al. Oh, I just blew this thing wide open. Yeah. Wow. Oh God. How the hell would Sam Beckett deal with the Daleks? Probably the, with heart. Or the Cybered Man. <laughs> what, if, what if the Cybered Man comes to Earth? In the Bronx. <laughs> and everyone turns to the doctor, but it's Scott Bakula. It's control. Scott fucking Bakula. With, a, I don't know, whatever he's wearing that season. Just, you know, some stylish high tops. It's a leather jacket. And he's leather jackets, stylish high tops, yellow leather jacket. He doesn't have jacket. all the knowledge of the universe contained in his head. He's just a quantum physicist who happened to stumble into this time travel shit. We've got a whole new series here. All he's got is Al. Is that it? Al? Yeah, Al. A- Al Clemens. Well, but Al could talk to the doctor, and for the first time, or in, or in a rare turn of events, the person in the waiting room could actually be helpful to them. Yeah. Hell. Sorry, Maybe I just had a horrific... Series, that's the finale. That's the Quantum Leap series finale we never got. 
So the doctor shows up and brings Scott Bakula home. Oh, that's that much better than what I was thinking, which is after he wrapped up his Doctor Who adventure, he uh, quantum leaps into David Hasselhoff driving Knight Rider, immediately doesn't know how to drive Knight Rider, <laughs> and smashes it into a tree and burns in there, just screaming, oh boy, oh boy. Well, oh no, but, but right, before, right before he dies, he leaps out. Because that's what he was there to do. <laughs> that was the wrong he was there to right. Brilliant. There we, there we go. That's Quantum Leap. <laughs> oh, I'm glad you enjoyed Quantum Leap. What are we doing next? To- oh, wait. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Uh, let's, let's go on our death march. We open with a pan over New York City and its present day as we well, are... Well, PUBG's going to see that. <laughs> we're helpfully informed by a little, you know, text thing. New York City, present day. Cool. As the camera starts approaching Central Park, the pan starts getting cut with shots of a woman running through foliage... And then two men and a woman, but not the other woman that we were seeing clearly because that woman was in like white stuff. And this was in sort of more of a like a, you know, pants and military-esque type bandolier. I don't know. Uh, they're, they're now in the park. There's two men and the woman. And I'm telling you, look, no matter how confusing I'm making it sound, it's not any better <laughs> to watch it. Okay. Uh but one of these two men seems sick or injured. He's got these weird veiny growths on his body and his hands uh, and so forth. And, 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 he, and he gives the other dude who's not sick an object that's wrapped in cloth, saying it's his responsibility now and his alone. So, you know, this is like the, the sort of um, cold open, you know, like, oh, what, what are the implications of this? We're setting up something. They're not setting up anything. <laughs> uh, the woman... The only people who have been set up are those poor saps who have had to watch the film. And I think uh, one of these two... Okay, so this whole early sequence, I guess we should just get out of the way, because this is not uh, Uwe Boll directed, but it is Uwe Boll produced. Yeah, in the same way that Uwe Boll produces a Jacula. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this was, uh, directed by, directed and written by Michael Roche and Peter Shearer. How dare they? How dare they? Now, uh, we've had prior experience with, uh, Michael Roche before, uh, he produced Blood Rain, House of the Dead, the first Dungeon Siege movie, got Is it related to Papa Roach? <sighs> You know, based on talent, I can see how you might be able to come to that conclusion, but I really don't know. Sick burn on a beloved pop culture institution there. Uh, Roche also wrote Far Cry, um, House of the Dead 2, The First Alone in the Dark, Uh, so... I thought we were still talking about Papa Roach. No, but uh, Uh, again... Speaking of House of the Dead, um, at some point, speaking of movies that you can only really get in a bad quality on YouTube... Um, we need to do Dead and Dead soon. Yep. Not next time. We've got that one locked down. But uh, maybe after that, because 
It's got some juicy Dean Kane in it, a slab of Kane. And I've, it's been a while since I talked about Dean Kane. Okay, so these guys, this, these these guys are just the duo that did half of Bull's crap. Awesome. Oh right, yeah, yeah, we got to talk about this. Oh. These, so <clears throat> that's who's responsible here. Just to make that clear, but this opening sequence is kind of the Uva Bull family reunion sequence. Because all the people who keep popping up in both films start making appearances. Um, we have Michael Pare uh, as the, I think he's the, the injured, the sick guy, I think. Um, or maybe it's not him, and I think the other guy's Jason Connery is the actor. These guys don't get named in these scenes. No. It's impossible to track them. They have names in the credits, but we were never given them in the story. So, super cool. Um, yeah, it's not important. I mean, that's it's not. That's no, the it's message not of important. the movie is that none of it's important. None of this matters. But the woman is uh, Natasia Malth, I believe, uh, who's our blood rain, our replacement blood rain. Ah, yeah. So she's there, and then uh, we're gonna see our good, 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 good friend, uh, and and kind of becoming patron animal of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Zach Ward. Hey, Zach Ward. Uh, but t- so, Pare, the other dude, Blood Rain, they're all hanging out. Yeah. Uh, Pare's that got whole that whole family. Get, they've got these. He, Pare's got these weird veiny growths on his body. He hands the other dude an object wrapped in cloth. It's his responsibility. The woman's been looking at some beeping device and comments that the signal has stopped. So, oh man, I'm really interested to know what all of this means. And I can sure count on this film to explain it in a way that is compelling and entertaining. The men have a discussion about their odds of survival. Uh, indicating that there's something hunting them. So, cool, we're learning all sorts of stuff in this introductory sequence. And they note that dawn is in 30 minutes, and that's said in a way that makes it seem like it's significant. (laughs) (laughs) They spot a public restroom, and in a decision that no one has made ever, has decided that that is safer at night in Central Park. (laughs) Best place to be. Uh, and then lightning happens. Uh, lots of it. <laughs> really kind of overly done. Uh, this is the, the strobe effect. Uh, it's probably worst in this opening sequence than as compared to anywhere else in the film. But, I mean, the film should have come with a seizure warning. Uh, it, it, someone's gonna, someone's should have sued. Yeah. But, like I you guess... said someone's gonna sue... As, and then corrected yourself because you realized that talking about this movie and the future, <laughs> it, yes. it just doesn't work. And, and Well, and I thought should have, I guess, my, well, as I was saying, it seemed a little strong too, because even still the statistical probability, <laughs> if you consider the number of people who would watch this film, vet diagram that with the people who have epileptic or photosensitive to it's a dwindling pool it's a it's an ever shallowing yeah (laughs) and so and maybe the insurance company looked at it and thought eh yeah yeah (laughs) hard to say um inside the bathroom is our old friend Zach Ward who hey (laughs) 
is in maybe the best costuming he's ever been in the bowl <laughs> film. Uh, dressed in this uh, jacket and loud shirt, but the shirt is made less loud by the light in the bathroom, which is a fluorescent that's sort of in a muted blue-green, so it washes out any color that his shirt had. Yeah, Zach Ward's character, knowing Zach Ward in this movie, is a complete set of the gold-coloured Golden Graham's mini Boglins. Hard to buy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he is... I just don't believe him doing shady, albeit out in broad daylight back alley deals, especially in that get-up. No, but he's trying. He's I mean, trying of course, to come across as sleazy. He is... He's that good and all. he's good at what he does. He's a fucking but, uh, professional. He's, he's not Gary Oldman. He can't just <laughs> melt into a role. <laughs> yeah, he, he's trying to be gross. Um, but And the script doesn't give him enough, I think, to be like truly offensive. Like, I mean, that's tr- a problem across the board, is no character is given depth. Like, the Edward can't be in this. I was like, why do he's I an care? Empty vessel. The <laughs> only thing he's got above a lot of the other characters is they named him. Yeah. That's about it. He is a uh, uh, wooden and. It's like lightning from Final Fantasy 13. All we've got to go on is I know what they look like and I know what they're called. Multiple... And I'm supposed to be invested in that. At, there are multiple points in the film where I'm not sure that they were actually shooting the film. Like, like, I don't think that they were shooting written dialogue so much as they were shooting instances of other actors in the film trying to force a motivation onto <laughs> Carnby so that the actor would have something to work with. Because this happens a couple of times where, it, yeah, it does seem pretty obvious that we don't really understand what Carnby's doing here. We got to give him some conflict. Yeah, it's only just hit me that, yeah, he's just there. Yeah, he's. I mean, he's there because, uh, ostensibly because of curiosity, because he want, you know, he's into occult shit, and this is an opportunity to learn about occult shit. But it's not, he, it's not developed enough. He no. doesn't express enough of a curiosity uh, to make that pay off in the People ways that they're just... trying to make it do that. People are just there, and things just happen towards them. And they don't put much effort into their happening while they're happening. No. The happening is happening, but it's not happening very well. Zach Ward is a coke dealer who is... (laughs) He is upset. I'd I'd believe it more if he was a Coca-Cola dealer. I can see him doing a coke head, and it's not that much of a leap from coke head to coke dealer. But he's, yeah, just, but you've, he's just too cute to go that extra mile. you got to know where you are in the ranking system. Right. Um, it's, it's, like, it's like promoting a good salesman to the role of a manager. It's like, <sighs> they might be a good salesman, doesn't mean they'll be a good manager. That is the worst mistake in retail, and you see it all the yeah. fucking time. And I think anybody could tell you that a cocaine addict is a terrible cocaine dealer. Yeah. Don't promote them. Don't yeah. promote Zach Ward. 
Because I, I assume it's the same for acting, that a, ter- a great cocaine addict performer... <laughs> Should never be would... put in a position where they have to perform as a great cocaine dealer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because they will just snort the flour from the bag. He is cleaning up spilled cocaine from a bathroom counter, which, again, now this... Again, I mean... very bad... Drug Very dealer. Bad. Because if, I think Zach Ward just spilled the flour. Well, no, no, it wasn't him that did it. Because th- this, this is them trying to give him shit to work with. Well, of course they're gonna. He's gonna blame someone else. Now I want to. I, I want to read a subtext into this character based on his actions here, because there is spilled cocaine on this bathroom counter in a Central Park public restroom. <laughs> That he's always done it in an apple biz. He is sweeping up. Smell the same. And putting into a bag, indicating that he is going to redistribute this. So he clearly has no concern (laughs) for the welfare of others. Like, that's what they're trying to put across. Maybe that's... I mean, if you're in there, you've got to just be cutting it with public Central Park (laughs) toilet gunk. But he he is upset at this spill having occurred, he's blaming the people who supplied him for not double taping the bags, which is, you know, clearly somebody involved in the writing of this film has some understanding of the logistics of distributing powders. Well, I mean, if you do your research, you've got to get into the trenches. Do your research, yes. I wonder how these guys did a bunch of research into yeah. the mechanics of cocaine transactions. They did They did a bump of research, <laughs> and then they knew a lot more about the distribution and handling of cocaine. Uh, and, and I'm sure that that there is in no way... Any sort of relationship, I'm not even going to posit this as a possibility. I think we all need to remove ourselves of the potential risk of the impression that maybe these people might have friends that are involved in some kind of, you know, I don't know, drug distribution business that might require vast sums of money to be laundered in some fashion. Just put that out of your mind. There's no way you should be making those kinds of connections. No way. I don't, yeah. I don't yeah, just, I have no idea why you would think that that's a possibility. But uh, these writers clearly uh, understood it, uh, that <laughs> when, when you're distributing bricks of powdered drugs and you're hiding them in places, you want to wrap duct tape around the plastic bag containing that brick before you then tape that somewhere because you don't want to tear the tape off as you're removing it from where it was secured and cause the bag to spill open. That's what he's upset about. Yeah. This podcast is educational. I learned something. <laughs> we all learned something. Uh, but he, he says he's not going to work with hippies anymore he's, he's, because I guess he, he stereotypes Puerto Ricans. They do it better. And I don't understand any of this either. I mean, I mean. Why is, are hippies is, distributing coke? Is hippies relevant in 2008 outside of South Park? I don't think so, and I never, I've never really thought of them as a hard drug 
distribution. No, like, no, I, I don't think that that getting wired off the old coke there. This is the, the last time show. I work with bikers. This is the last time I work with skinheads. There's all sorts of groups that you could have. I mean, really, for 2008, it's more like this is the last time I deal with with dads in the mob who haven't gotten out of the 80s. Right. Uh, this is That's the... what I get for dealing with people from Miami who haven't let go. This is the last time I buy from upper middle class high school students. Yeah, yeah. Like, any of those would have worked better than hippies. I just don't get it. Um, but he's preening himself in the hippies. mirror. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, it's, it's funny again. Yeah, it's, it's all very funny. He's preening himself in the mirror, and that's fun. I enjoy that. I enjoy. I do enjoy watching. I like seeing Zach Ward on a screen. I can't help it. It doesn't matter. I enjoy seeing Zach Ward take care of himself. (laughs) I like. You know what gets me off? You know what? You know what makes me bite my lip, mate? Is seeing Zach Ward just tidy himself up a bit, straightening his shirt. Oh, thank you, madam. He quickly uh, gathers his boombox, however, uh, and his bricks of coke when he hears people coming into the bathroom, and he hides in one of the bathroom stalls. I wish that the coke was, like, colored brown. Like, they went into the double the double bag in and all of that stuff, but then got the color of the coke wrong. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's... Yeah... Like blue, like the meth in Breaking Bad. Right. Yeah. That was a lovely color. Well, I mean, brown would be more uh, associated with heroin. I mean, it could have been heroin. Yeah. Uh, um, the three people from earlier now enter the bathroom. The sick dude is set on the floor next to the radiator, and the living dude does a security sweep on the bathroom, kicking open one stall after another and increasing the dread of the situation for poor Zach Ward... But he stops with the one before Zach Ward's. Uh, he's just stalling. Well, what he's, he's looking for a pipe. That's what he's doing, I guess. Because that's why he stops, or at least that's oh, what yeah. the camera suggests, is that he sees a pipe fixture. He's like, oh, okay, that seems like a good reason to stop making sure that this place is secure. <laughs> uh, announcing that she's not getting the dagger tonight, whatever the fuck that means he unrolls the cloth thing oh oh okay it's the dagger <laughs> all right and he unscrews the pommel of the dagger I th- daggers have pommels like swords right that's that's what you call uh, that end bit isn't it i mean yeah yeah you call it a pommel from what i remember yeah i would think and boy <laughs> this is the cheapest fucking prop ever and, and that is why you never really get to see it until the in like clear light until the very very last shot of. The and film. even then, even then, for as much of it as they can, they've superimposed a bit of a yellow cartoon over it. Yeah, just is. They went to a uh, army surplus store <laughs> and bought a cheap boot knife, uh, like a like a bayonet boot style boot knife, and that's what it is. Yeah. Uh, it's it's just really shit. Uh, so he unscrews the pommel of this, and, and that exposes that, oh, this dagger is hollow. And 
and it contains a glass vial with some weird, like, fleshy thing in it that he removes. And now the woman's device thing starts beeping again, and and she gets real concerned about this. I, on the other hand, have no fucking context for what this actually means, what any of this means yet. And I never will. (laughs) Sick dude tells the living dude to burn the thing that's in the glass vial. And living and living dude does that. I'm calling him living dude because it's quite clear sick dude ain't gonna be pretty soon. Yeah. Uh, so the the thing in the vial is burned, and then the dagger is wrapped up and stuffed into that pipe that distracted him from discovering Zach Ward a couple seconds ago. And then the sick dude starts carving something in his chest. And casually suggests that the others should kill him, thinking that whatever's coming for them will stop if he is dead. Oh, yeah, yeah, that filters back into my memory. And he doesn't say, all right, well, give me a second to finish carving this shit in my chest, but maybe then you could try killing me. Like, what would have happened if they just said, all right, fine, boom, and that's it? I mean, I guess these guys probably have a deeper relationship than that, but uh, I don't know. I don't understand these people at all yet. Uh, but then it's it's pointed. And you out, never will. I, and I never will because of what is about to happen. It's pointed out that Blood Rain here also has the marks, so that's going to be a no go. Although that it said, well, but it's just started, so you know they won't be chasing her yet. And I still don't know what any of this means. And then the beeping gets really fast, and they drop a couple of flares, and I don't understand why they did that. <laughs> and then a whole bunch of nothing comes through the door, and they start shooting at it. They do lots of shooting. Yeah, and the... Uh... Let's just say the 240p version of that is... Difficult. No, it's... I I gotta tell you, it's not really a whole lot of better in 1080p. (laughs) Uh, It was still quite difficult. It was just a lot of flashing and a lot of... Well, it's... They learned how to do gunfire from Uva Ball. I mean, that's... It's static shots of people holding guns with superimposed gunfire flash special effects on it, which are better than they have been in the past. I have to give them credit. They don't reuse as much. There are some slightly slight differences in between them, and they do enough cutting between angles to mask it. So, like, they've learned stuff since House of the Dead. But it's still the same shit. Um, Zach Ward's freaked the fuck out by all of this gunfire, And then when the shooting stops, he hears something doing some violent killings on the other side of that bathroom stall door. And the camera's all sort of situated on him. We're not shown any of it. And then it cuts to his perspective through the crack. He sees a creepy face made out of smoke and starts screaming. And it comes at him and, oh my god, it's the title of Alone in the Dark 2. Yeah. We are seven minutes into this film. It's hardly a James Bond cut to the sequence with no, the song and but the production I, value I would and the great l- setup. And I pacing. would like all of these movies better 
if they had James Bond-style title sequences. Yes, that's what I want. With I want... songs that include the names of the movies. As... Alone in the dark with your heart. <laughs> I'm alone in the dark. Two. That'd be great. Because uh, it's two. <laughs> two, I'm yeah. In the dark, yeah. Too. <laughs> uh... Three days later, Zach Ward, who looks like a vagrant now, and the costume (laughs) difference is so dramatic that, as I stated earlier, in the 240p version that I watched, I did not realize that this was not a different character. Yeah, the the floppy hair also is distracting, so it's very hard to make out anything else in the scene because all you can do is look at those flippy floppy bangs. Well, it's it's poking out that hood because he seems to have like transitioned from uh, '80s uh, yuppie slacker dealer, uh, like the guy, the kind of sleazy guy that slacker that yuppies would buy from in the '80s to the kind of guy who would have been buying those drugs in the 90s. Yes, that's actually very astute. It just, you know, he's now hoodie and he's gone grunge. (laughs) Zach Ward in this character is the $400 Darksiders Collector's Edition. I couldn't possibly buy it. So he's hanging out in New York City, making a cell phone call to a dude standing three feet away from him. (laughs) This dude is Edward Cardby. And Zach Ward was told by a guy named Shep, whom we we never meet. Shemp. Shep is, I I mean, I, I guess he's a... Uh, a fence. That's the. I, that would be my assumption based on what I know about Shep, in that he has provided information to connect to people interested in the same thing. Uh, <coughs> uh, but uh, he's heard from Shep that Carnby knows about ghosts and shit, but Carnby knows the value of secret occult knowledge and says it don't come cheap. Yeah. Well, he he rolls in a cult with like ten d tens. Right. Yeah. So it's you know he's just on another level here, and and apparently this intermediary Shep mentioned to Carnby something about a dagger that made Carnby very interested. But upon hearing about the dagger, Zach Ward gets a migraine. And Zach Ward's good. I mean, at that point, he's simulating how we feel watching. Oh, God, yes. Yeah, I identify more with Zach Ward in this role that he's playing than yes. anybody else. Yes, Because every time I hear about this dagger, I have the exact same reaction. In uh, this character's moment, he is a piranha plant puppet in that I bought it very easily. <laughs> Yeah, I would totally, I'd totally throw it out for a piranha plant. I, I got one. Like, I, I was looking up merchandise to try and find an obscure character to compare to Waluigi, and I genuinely bought it when I saw it because it was amazing. Oh, that's, that's just a smart idea for a hand puppet. It's completely altered my lifestyle. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Well, it's, it's got to be harder to use, like, utensils to eat because, you know, it's just one yeah. mouth, I would assume. It's hard to hold. I mean, 
Typically what I do now is because it's plush, I just soak it in the soup and then (laughs) suck soup out of it. I wash my hands at the end, you know, a couple squirts of water. Right. Scrub, scrub, scrub. (laughs) Hope that the water filters through the piranha plant puppet and gets to my real hand underneath, which by this point is in no fit state. It, it, there will come a point where you will no longer have the option to remove it, and that will take a lot of the onus off you. But for yeah. now, you're still at that midpoint. You just don't want to know what's there. Yeah, I, I'm not. I, I don't want to like try and lift the underside of it and have the the seal of pus, which has dried now, to keep it all like all of its smells away from me. I don't want to risk cracking that open now. So, Zach Ward, <laughs> what Zach Ward wants, and I, I don't know why he went to Carnby for this, like what it is about, like what it is about Carnby specifically that makes him good Carnby's for Carnby's a very awkward name to say. It is. Carnby. Yeah. It's strange. Like, are you, you expected to say like carnival or something. Yeah. Or cartwheel. Er, Can be carnivore. Carvery. Edward Carvery. <laughs> Edward God, I Carver. want some beef now. So what Zach Ward wants is to get into the coroner's office so he could check out the corpses of the three people who got killed in the bathroom he was in. And I'm guessing he wants Cardby there because Cardenby might understand what he's looking at as opposed to Zach Ward, who I can't imagine has a fucking clue. Again, very identifiable at this point. Right, yeah. Uh, it's only been three days. Like, damn, how much does he know? What has he learned in these three days? Where's that movie? Where is the movie that chronicles the three days of Zach Ward in this situation? God, that'd be a better movie. We could do that as a prequel now. Oh, can we? Yeah, I'll get the funding for it. I'm, I'll, uh, sh- I'm sure we could, I'll, actually. I'll I... hook up with those boys who are remaking The Last Jedi, <laughs> and I'll uh, see how they got their funding and set their stuff up, like what producers they're in touch with and what studio they're using. Oh, yeah, well, I mean, because that thing's rock solid, and if there's anybody that I could count on to give well, good Well, I'm already there. in talks to play the Jabba Diot one. I can do that. Like, oh, solo. Yeah. Oh, yeah. God, that, that, that is the tragedy, because you, you, were, you were on board for the, the second solo movie, and now it sounds like all of those, you know, side story stuff is out of production. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's because not enough bastards went to see it. It's so long solo for me. Uh, that's, you know, that, I, I was really looking forward to seeing you uh, interacting with a young, salacious crumb. You know uh, that that whole subplot where the two of two of those characters meet for the first time and have that wacky misadventure where yeah. Uh, yeah. Salacious Crumb saves saves a young Jabba's life and the two and of it's going them... <laughs> like as it does it the whole movie it's unbearable. You know it's almost as if we would like to talk about anything but this movie. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's a pissing shame that eventually I'm going to have to leave my my dream and go back to that. It's just like that time I got rejected as being a young dynamo from The Running Man. 
They actually, I say young. Now I'm now you're just dynamite. I made that comparison. I was yeah. young, and now I realize I'm much older than when I first pointed that out. And now I am just dark dynamo. Days, right? Yeah, and uh, probably be old dynamo Before in a minute. Mm-hmm. No, by the by the time we're done with this podcast, by the time we're sure. done with this, yeah. Uh, so they go to a hospital that is a very nice-looking hospital, actually, with a very nice-looking sign indicating where the emergency room is and so forth. And we get this great shot of this well-maintained-looking hospital. And then we're given a shot of a sort of disused alley that we're supposed to believe is the side of this building. That seems yeah, I actually so well think the disused the alley... I'd more believe it if the disused alley was the office... Of the director of this movie. Yes, I think that that's... Uh... I think this is where the two... It's two directors, isn't it? Yeah. Or is it right director team? Either way, those two charlatans do all their business out of this fucking disused alley. <laughs> and... In fact, any disused alley is both their office and their toilet. And for some reason, A, this is a legitimate route into this hospital. And B, Carnby knows this. And C... Zach Ward acts like the manner in which Carnby gets in is significant. Like, it's some secret when he really just sort of hops down into a thing and goes in a door. Like, it makes it sound like, how did you figure out how to do this? Or how did you know how to do this? Well, like, what? I mean, he just hopped out of what to do. Like, if he just knows the area, that would make sense. I'm more concerned about this hospital having this alley... (laughs) That makes no sense. Um, and and when asked about it, Cardby breaks, or just Cardby responds with this just delicious bit of dialogue. It's not about how, but how much. And that's not an answer really to any question. No, well, I mean, the dialogue in this is weird. Like the one I quoted at the beginning was... Yeah, it's just weird, corny shit. And not, but it's it's not even not even corny shit that makes sense in context or no. It's, it's like lines that they want to be called, but are just cheesy. But and don't construct... fit into the scene at all. Yeah, they didn't construct any framework around them within the dialogue. So strange. Uh, they find their way to a morgue. And locate the bodies of the people who died in the bathroom. And they all have the same veidy shit that Zach Ward does, which Carnby discovers reacts to light. And Zach Ward's like, yeah, I thought that was pretty cool, too. And Zach Ward uh, gives his best disaffected try to make that turd of a line seem cool. Uh, yeah. And then he starts vomiting blood. <laughs> <laughs> Again, very relatable with the audience <laughs> yep, at this point. I'm ready. I'm right there with you, Zach Ward. And he explains it all started when he touched that dagger. Cardby is astonished to discover that the dagger is real, indicating that he knows stuff about the dagger that we, as the audience, have not yet been made privy to. Well, thank God someone knows something about this. Zach Ward gives it to him to check out, but tells him not to touch it. And there's a symbol on the knife that matches the mark that it leaves on people's hands. Ooh. Does this pay off? <laughs> no. 
Zach Ward says, since he touched the knife, he's been hearing the voice of a witch who owns the dagger and wants to make him do things. Well, thank God somebody's filling us in. Just why did it have to be the guy I related to so much up till now for not seeming to understand what was going on? These assholes who wrote this, I swear. Just... They should get back in their toilet. I just, I just, I take comfort in the, the idea that it doesn't, in the, in the thought that it doesn't seem like they've done anything really since Bowles production stuff stopped. So they probably just kept their head down. Yeah. Close to the grindstone. Get on with it. And they're right. Get on with it and don't inflict it on us. So he's uh, been hearing this voice of this witch who owns the dagger and wants to make him do things. Carnby finds the original sick dude and does the old detective trick. Uh, you know, like he, he sees the stuff that the guy has carved into his chest Ed does the old detective trick of taking a piece of paper and rubbing a pencil on it to create an impression of the letters, which is... <laughs> it's, it's not just impractical. It's also so not the way that works. Yeah, well, later on, he writes a letter in lemon juice and then they put it on a radiator and see the, the sentences. I, I could understand doing that. And like the, the reason you do that normally is that you find a piece of paper with the sheet that had the thing written on it torn off and you want to understand what it was that it was said. You want to see it, so it's made an impression of the paper and you use a, you know, a pencil to rub on it and raise that impression. You could also do a bas-relief with a piece of paper and do this. But that sort of works on firm stuff, not, oh, I don't know, fleshy chest wounds. What are you expecting to get from that? And the worst part is, is that it's four characters. K-E-1-2. Yeah. Fucking write it down. You have the pencil. Just as many characters that are inside the door of the bird woman on Zoobly Zoom. Uh, I'd never seen Zoobly Zoo before. That seemed very confined to the United States. Uh, but in, a, in an evening of nostalgia, it came up on uh, the TV. Huh. And I realized that in this episode, that was just, you know, YouTube playlists and shit, come up. She's a journalist as well, bear in mind, but her alphabet only goes up to D. A, B, C, D. That's on her door. And then the rest is just jumbles all around the house like something you'd see in John Doe in Seven. Oh, okay. Well, um, first off, that seems very limiting at first, right? That those are the only letters that she as a writer knows. But I want you to think about it a little bit and think about who she's speaking to. She's speaking to the youth of America. And when it comes to the youth of America, dab is all you need. Oh, yeah. Oh, see, there's layers there. You just got to peel it back like an onion. Or like, oh, I don't know, the flesh that contains the carved-in letters that are your clue to progress the plot of this movie. Anything would be better Mm. than fucking creating a relief of it, but we are. (laughs) I wish I was watching Zoobly Zoo again, and I found it quite ghastly. (laughs) It looked like, I don't know, it looked like, it looks like what would happen if supervillains just stayed in the facility that had tested on them <laughs> and never thought to put on costumes and become supervillains. They just stayed put 
after eating the guards and not knowing how to escape <laughs> and just got very confused and created their own horrific society where in this particular episode the kangaroo that looked exactly like a cat except with a pouch was super gluing stuff to stuff and people's hands got trapped like they were in a jigsaw trap in saw okay all right now you've piqued my interest hear me out red dwarf Serial killer. Huh. And uh, left alone with, oh, uh, who would be good? I mean, maybe it's just two serial killers. Maybe it's John from Saw as uh, Lister. Yeah. And uh, or... and, and and Hannibal Lecter as, <laughs> as Rimmer. You see, in my when you said that, I imagined... Uh, just a serial killer was on Red Dwarf picking them up one by one. <laughs> oh my god! Oh. There's just one fewer every episode, and they're still trying to do a comedy show. But <laughs> yes, you know they get rid of Chris Barry first, oh, so it's be... already way less funny. We need to get them on the phone and get them to do like like a reunion special. That that's the premise. Oh man, that'd be so good. Yeah. Didn't well, they, they did just... new seasons. Yeah, they did, yeah, they did yeah, new they did. seasons. I didn't. Um... I actually didn't catch up with them. I've got the Blu-ray of season 10 somewhere. I've got to get that out. But I think they've had uh, more after that. Uh, the first one I saw, it was I only saw the first episode of season 10, but it seemed pretty funny. Although the the story thing they added to it, I didn't know. I, I think it removed some of the humour of uh, one of the characters, not to give too much away, but it was all right. It wasn't Alone in the Dark too. <laughs> well, what is... So they uh, they return to the Central Park bathroom. This is uh, Zach Ward and Carnby. And Carnby feels around in the pipe where the dagger was hidden, looking for something, but he doesn't find it. And he asks Zach Ward if the people involved might have hidden a thing they had with the dagger elsewhere. Meanwhile, I guess the witch is coming or something. It's really not clear. What, what is clear is that Zach Ward, on command of the witch, I guess, stabs Carnby in the gut with the dagger. And then, yeah. and then after that, Zach Ward calls out to nothing at all and collapses. <laughs> and another group of armed people now come in with a beeping device <laughs> looking for the dagger. And the, beeper, the beeping gets super fast. And they realize that whatever the beeping is caused by, which I guess this witch, because, again, everything's been real vague up to this point, uh, it, that, that, that thing's coming for Zach Ward. So they shoot him, hoping that it'll make them lose interest like the sick guy, the guy who was infected in the first seed suggested that they do. But uh, that didn't happen immediately, I guess, because those people had a relationship and this guy's just a drug dealer and they don't know him. Uh, who are these people? I, I just, they just murdered a man. <laughs> uh, commenting that the knife is starting to dissolve inside of Cardby, which, okay, the mechanics of this knife are, I really don't understand them. Uh, but they take Cardby and the knife and they leave. 
and they drive to wherever it is they're going. And as that happens, Carnby starts having these visions of an older white dude asking who he is and where the dagger is. And then they pull over to extract a piece of the dagger that's still inside of. It's this just weird... I guess, I don't know why it was necessary that they did this here, inserted this sequence where they pull over and they couldn't just move ahead to them being back, but they did that. Doesn't There's no payoff or purpose to it that I'm aware of. Uh, they then cut to a rural house in daytime as Sinclair, which is the woman of the four people who showed up out of nowhere in the last seed, is cleaning the blood out of the back of their car. Okay. I think they should have been cleaning up spilled cocaine. Yeah, totally. And complaining about go- goddamn hippies hanging out in the car. Carnby comes to inside the house, I guess. Uh, he's being watched by a scary guy whose name is Boyle. I, I really don't... I think they name him like shortly thereafter, and that's why I know he's Boyle. Uh, yeah. We also meet who I'll only... Because they haven't named him yet, so I'll call him Goatee Dude. Um, Bill Moseley, by Mosley. the way. Bill Moseley, who played Luigi Largo in Repo the Genetic Opera. Yep. And he was in, uh, I think he was in like The Devil's Rejects, House of a Thousand Corpses, stuff like that mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. A lot of horror stuff. Was in Carnival as well. Yes, yes. I, I'm a big fan of Carnival. And, yeah, uh, I know you, you I think you, that came uh, up last time, we, me. last time we saw him. I think he came up. That came up, yeah. Oh, probably, yeah, yeah. I'd have recognized him. Yeah. I, need to, I need to watch that again. Carnival. I'm watching, uh, going through the Marvel series at the moment. Yeah, I just... Finished season one of Jessica Jones last night. I, so the second season, actually just about everything after Defenders for me has been impenetrable on the Netflix side. Yeah? Yeah. And I I haven't got to Defenders yet. Like, I didn't, I I skipped Iron Fist entirely because I heard such terrible things about it. Yeah, I was thinking, like, can I get away with not watching that one? And then I i don't even recall if I started to watch Defenders because it just, again, like the commentary I kept hearing was like, Meh. so I'm like, I'm, but I'm, I'm in for Jessica Jones. I'm in for Daredevil. I'm in for Luke Cage. And I made it through Jessica Jones season two and it's pretty good. Like, it's pretty good. But I tried Luke Cage season two, and I'm like two episodes in, and I'm like, I'm not invested in this, and and it feels like I missed a bunch of stuff that's relevant to this Luke Cage shit in Defenders. Uh. And I don't know if that's actually the case or not, but I'm just not connecting with it. So I don't know if I'm going to have to go back and deal with that, or or if I'm just... Uh done with anything that's not Jessica Jones and Daredevil, which is a shame because uh-huh. Luke Cage yeah, is... The first season of Luke Cage pro- is really fun. That's the problem with the interconnectivity of it all. Yeah. Um, you know, when when the height of television, when, when the great American masterpiece, Angel, starring Matt Borealis as David Borealis, aired, they were pretty selective about the kind of crossover they do with Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Mm-hmm. And even then, they'd give you a bit of a recap between both shows to let you know what was going on. They, like, you can't, if you interweave it too much, you could knock off whole seasons for people that got into just a show. Yeah, entire segments of the audience could get turned off because they, you know, aren't interested in keeping up with what's going on with fucking Iron Fist. <laughs> like, yeah. That's it. I don't want to watch Iron Fist. Yeah. 
I could not give a sh- I, I could not possibly give a shit less about Iron Fist. Marvel, don't make me watch Iron Fist, please. Yeah. Please, Marvel, don't. Don't make me watch Iron Fist now, Marvel, please. So, Goatee Dude and Danny Trejo is here also. Yeah. How dare us beg Marvel not to make us play uh, watch Iron Fist when we're willingly watching Alone in the Dark 2. <laughs> right. Well, this is a smaller time investment. Although, no, that's true. maybe not by the time we're done with the recording. Yeah, I, I guess we should get yeah, I'm, I'm, because I'm, this I'm, is really upsetting me now. <laughs> uh, so Danny Trejo is the guy who fixes stuff, but he can't fix whatever he happens to be fixing when we're introduced to him. Yeah. And Natalie, who is... Again, well, I say reflective of us, reflective of the people who made this movie, I think. Is trying to fix everything, but it's all broken. Yes. And it's never getting better. No. Uh, Natalie is introduced here as well. She is a, a young white woman um, who is apparently the daughter of Goatee Dude. Um, uh, th- yep. They're the, the man Dexter who family. warns us. He's the man who warns us uh, that don't look into the mirror. Of oh your yeah, dreams. yeah. We'll get. Yeah, we're just about to that fun bit of weirdness. Uh, she she lets him know that Carnaby's regained consciousness and they go to see him and, and explain to him that he's been stabbed with this dagger and because of that he's going to have visions and that they want to know what he sees specifically to discover the location that they're in. Oh! And he can't look into a mirror in his vision or the bad people will know where they are. Yeah, it's basically the mirror from the children's ITV show in uh, 80s, 90s Nightmare. Mm-hmm. Where if you looked into the mirror, Lord Fear would, uh, if you looked in it too long, uh, he would know you're spying on him and he'd look into the mirror and you'd be like, put the mirror down, put the mirror down, Dungeoneer, otherwise Lord Fear will know what's going on. And you'd be like, oh, shit. Natalie. And then Treyguard would be like, ooh, nasty, if you fell into a trap. So Natalie does her level best to reassure Carnby that these weird people that have basically kidnapped him are trying to save his life. Uh, Daddy Dexter and Natalie then discuss their situation privately. And he's worried that the dagger is deteriorated from being in Carnby's belly for too long. But also because of the stuff that was taken out of the the dagger earlier, uh, which is a a reliquary, um, that's now missing. I don't understand any of this. Nobody has mm. given me context or exposition. Where is the fucking exposition in this? It is not supposed to be like a chewy center, okay? <laughs> don't make me work to get to the exposition. Give me some exposition so that it doesn't feel like work to get through your movie. Horrible. Uh, Natalie suggests that they get help from a guy named Abner. Who the fuck is Abner? <laughs> and Daddy Dexter gets all stupid pissed off about the suggestion. <laughs> and snaps at her saying that Natalie's grandfather made a mistake in having worked with him before. And he is not a good actor in this. <laughs> I... I I know he's better in other places, but and, and the dialogue again does nobody any favors. It's dialogue. It's a mischaracterization, and it's you've got to be a certain serious actor. Yeah, I mean, he needed to, to pull off that kind of really quite boring role without just looking 
psychotic when you have to put the emotion and energy <laughs> yeah. in. Yeah. Like, it's it's weird. It's there are certain characters certain actors can't do. Yeah. And this at the end of the day. This particular seed I think required a nuance in delivery that you know like a bit of a seething or not just like barking. <laughs> yeah. And let's face it, nobody who worked on this movie knows how any character should be. No, because they they clearly not fleshed anyone out to any significant care. degree. Yeah, yeah. Um, Carnby continues to have visions of that old dude while Boyle is sitting over him with a shotgun, and then Boyle just like gets up and leaves the room to go smoke a cigar outside, which seems. Strange, because we've already seen him sitting next to smoking a cigar indoors. Maybe he just wanted some fresh air. He's just been snidey about it. This is just a snide one he's having. And and clearly everyone that is, uh, you know, a guard-type figure in this, or, you know, a, you know, a military-focused or the defender-type characters, they are all clearly very well-trained and good at their mercenary knowledge. And an awareness of defensibility of and you know keeping people safe and all that because just like the other guy who didn't bother to check the fourth stall in the bathroom, he just leaves the shotgun next to Carnby in the bed, and goes outside to smoke his cigar. So Carnby takes the shotgun <laughs> and tries to escape the house through the front door. Uh, the Boyle is now gone from the front porch, so he's able to just do that. He's not seen. Uh, and he tries to get to the, he gets to the car, but abandons that as he doesn't have the keys. He starts crawling further away. And then his absence is eventually discovered by the others, and there's a short search that turns him up about 50 feet from the house. None of this is necessary or adds characterization to anybody. <laughs> And Daddy, the movie in a nutshell. And Daddy Dexter immediately asks if he's looking in a mirror, <laughs> as if that's an answer that anybody other than him has. <laughs> they bring it back inside and try to stabilize it with a shot of adrenaline. And as this happens, Cardby sees the witch for the first time through a mirror. Oh, that's where they told him not to, to find a witch. And the witch tells him that she knows who he really is. Well, I, that's one of us. I'm glad somebody <laughs> in this... Uh, Cardby... Really, she could have just stopped at I know, and we just... Brilliant, something, <laughs> <Yeah>. great. <laughs> Cardby's returned to the bed of the farmhouse, and Daddy Dexter tells Natalie to go see Abner. And gives her the dagger. So we're all just carrying this dagger around everywhere we go. Um, it is obviously central to the film because we cannot have a scene in which it is not present or we're thinking about where the dagger is. Yeah. So Natalie goes... I'm, just think- I'm thinking about the cartoon show Extreme Dinosaurs right now. Uh, so that's like, what, your defense mechanism? That, yeah, it's just what's <laughs> come to mind to to help me deal. To help you cope, yeah. yeah. So Natalie goes and drives to another creepy rural place, this time a cabin. Uh, Daddy Dexter confronts Carnby about having seen the witch in the mirror and tells him that the witch is going to come for him. 
and Carnby confirms that she's looking for the dagger and describes the scene of his vision that an older man was torturing a woman for information on the dagger's whereabouts over this open pit that he dug for her grave. And Daddy Dexter confirms that this is an event from years ago and that the old dude is Granddaddy Dexter and that, uh, that he's currently seeking the location that this event took place at. So, finally, something to cling to. It, it, it still doesn't explain much of anything, really, uh, except that now it's a whole family deal. Uh, he helpfully gives some motivation for the villain, uh, who is, is actually after Natalie, he says. I mean, it's hard to remember this movie even has a villain, even in the scenes the villain's in. Right? And speaking of Natalie, Abner uh, is discovered by Natalie. Uh, good old Lance Henriksen. Yes? Oh, oh, yeah. I completely forgot he was in it. Yeah. And uh, a, Poor bastard. a fucking pro to the end doing what he can with what's here, giving it just the right amount of cheese uh, to be interesting. But it's... Um... Yeah, and what makes me really sad is this wasn't even as low as he could go because he was in Detroit Become Human, which was an even bigger piece of shit. Oh, poor Lance. Anyway, he's skinning a rodent. <laughs> <laughs> and she introduces herself uh, after he finishes rinsing off his uh, and this is here we go this is Chekhov's rinse barrel we had to be showed him skidding this rodent so that he could be showed rinsing off the rodent in this bucket of water that is outside so that we could have a later payoff. Because that that barrel's got to come into play later. Yeah. It's one of the few times they actually do come up with a payoff for something. Yeah, but it's not, it's not anything that... It, it's interesting. Okay, I'll give them credit in that it's more subtle. Oh, my God. It, these are the same guys that did the hot tub, aren't they? It, 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 the name of the king, too. <laughs> yes that's why they were brought on they're like you you're the hot tub guys you've done writing or near it we need your almost writing to save this film it, oh god it, it is the same guys I, well but they just they were just responsible for the first one the time travel stuff didn't get into students to the second i don't know Oh man, it's just this whole camp. But that's that's great that we get to see that again. I'm I'm quite amused. Yeah. I can't believe I didn't didn't think of it before. And it's the same it's the same gimmick. It's the same death. <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> wow. So uh they go inside It's the one trick they know. <laughs> Anyone in this sort of Uberball sphere, it's the one trick Uberball doesn't know it, but several people underneath him do. We need to introduce a container of water. They're the only in ones one. Yeah. They convince him to do it because it's like he's too impatient. He doesn't know why we're setting up water <laughs> now for later on. Um, because wow. basically he hates Wimpy from Popeye, oh. and he's like, how, "How dare he? Yeah, have to wait till Tuesday. How, no, yeah, no, I will I have my, my money, money now. now. 
Well, that's that, you know, that's his. That's how he got the films made. Yeah, he'll take his pound of burger flesh. That's right. Uh, so they go into Abner's house, and yeah. she tells him that the this bit's all this bit's all crap. So they go inside. Uh, Abner's house, and she tells him that the witch is back and they need his help, and he replies that he, well, I'm out of the game now. Uh, and the, the witch is just going to destroy their whole family if she keeps getting into it. But it's too late for Natalie, as she shows him a mark that appeared on her wrist three weeks ago uh, that was later followed by haunting dreams. And Abner explains that the witch is after her family out of revenge, as it was Granddaddy Dexter that had first hunted her down. Um... And then she gives him the knife. <laughs> and you got to keep it. Let's keep in mind that everybody who is aware of the existence of this thing has expressed at the very least respect, if not concern or outright fear of touching it. Yeah, they, they don't want to fuck around with that knife. Right. <laughs> and Lance Edricks just picks it up <laughs> like it's nothing. <laughs> Rebutting her warning with a comment on how his life experience has rendered him immune to, and I quote, witchcraft crap. <laughs> God bless you, Lance Hedrickson. Uh <laughs> So he observes also that the reliquary is absent uh, from the dagger and that the dagger's been used, and he seems rather interested when he's told that the person who got stabbed with it is still alive. So Natalie asks again for his help, noting that her grandfather had trusted him in the past. But before he can answer, a woman enters the room to discuss a customer service issue related to his veterinary business. And, and I love this. I love her. It is the one thing that they deliberately did as a per- for the purposes of, like, comic relief that works. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's obvious that they wanted the- her to be comic relief. She is comic relief, not just now, but later. She is, I think, probably the only thing about this film uh, that Nothing justifies its existence, but if you're going to find that barest, barest vein of silver in this incredibly black cloud, it's probably her. Her performance is just delightful. Uh, Abner comes to Carnby's bedside at uh, the Dexter house, and he makes a sachet, 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 I, yeah, I can't remember, sachet. sachet, with some herbs that he chews up and then spits into it and has it pressed to uh, Carnaby's wound by Natalie. And then fondling the dagger, he comments on its materials and its value and asks what Carnby wanted from it, indicating that it could be used to grant eternal life, albeit at the cost of killing others. And gives a little bit of insight into the witch, saying that she's hundreds of years old and bears considerably more occult knowledge than they do. Which is not... It's still not a lot, guys. Like, okay, so she wants this knife. She's after Natalie for reasons. She's old and she's a witch. So, yeah, occult, occult, I get it. And then he injects radioactive... I, I think it's, um... Uh, Botox, because he ejects it into Carnby's upper upper lip. And he says that this is going to render him invisible to the, quote, other side. 
and then in a less effective attempt at comic relief, makes a joke about his hair possibly falling out tomorrow if the dose was too strong. (laughs) Abner then warns Natalie not to get involved with Carnby, calling him an idealist and saying that's a bad thing that he recognizes as a trait that he used to have. I don't understand how this interaction that he came to that conclusion, because Carnby just said that he wanted to know things. I don't... (laughs) Then, uh, as uh, Abner's leaving the house, he encounters Daddy Dexter and uh, tells him that, hey, you know, the dagger's not really that physically dangerous a weapon, but uh, it instead kills the soul. Okay, thanks for inserting that bit of information here. I'm sh- yeah, they do seem to draw a distinction between your soul being killed and your body being killed as if they wouldn't really have the same effect. Well, that's significant for the you know finale, for the I climax. Know what it's signific- but... I know what it's significant for, but it doesn't... But the way it's yeah. spoken about makes it... It just seems like, well, no, that just sounds like you're describing death. <laughs> right. Either way, yeah. Uh, so, uh, Daddy Dexter invites Abner to join him, but hey, Abner's out the game. Having long ago destroyed any witchy stuff Grand- Granddaddy Dexter might have given him. Oh, yeah, that witchy crap. Uh, and Daddy Dexter finds this uh, nauseating. <laughs> Says, I found you nauseating then, and I find you nauseating now. Really terrible bit of dialogue delivered also. I mean, t- delivered in the only way it can be, which is poorly. <laughs> There's no way to, to fix that. Uh, Abner wards that Cardby has two, three days left, uh, which kind of... Uh, okay, so getting your soul killed is really bad then, right? <laughs> I mean, it sounded shit to begin with. Uh, but but he blows out. He's like, yeah, you know, that's, that's if he lives that long, because the witch might show up sooner. So that's neat. And that night, Carnby. It was around this time, I think I was googling the Blair Witch figures. Yeah, that I would too. By this point, seeking any distraction. That night, Carnby's just walking around the house because they're just letting him walk around the house after he, you know, took a gun and tried to leave. Well, it would have taken time and effort to write scenes of him, you know, them sure. gaining each other's trust and everything. Sure. Uh, and he picks up the dagger, which, you know, since he's already, you know, touched it, it's not going to have any effect on him. But it, uh, it does give him another short vision of the witch. So, neat. And then Doyle is sitting there, <laughs> useless fucking guard dog Doyle. He's just watching him <laughs> poke around shit. And then startles uh, Carnby as he's starting to look at some equipment, which is explained that it's being used to monitor for certain frequencies at specific patterns because the witch is broadcasting them with her existence, I guess. So that's what all that beeping was about. Cool. Good. Good. I'm glad we solved that mystery. Yeah. I'm glad we know that fact. She's basically the monsters from Silent Hill the things, with a radio. It's the things that were easy to discern about this get clarified. <laughs> like, after seeing it the, the first time I got it, you know, in the beeping 
thing and the way they were talking about it, I, I got that it was a proximity thing that they were doing. So they had to make sure to really explain that. Yeah. The dagger and the reliquary shit. What? <laughs> Daddy Dexter enters the room and says, don't worry. They've got some surprises in store for her. But they, they should be worried because Carnby gets, you know, some like stomach pains and says that the witch is here. So everybody, you know, this alarm gets rugged. Everybody's moved to this panic room upstairs that's designed to be completely bathed in light. Oh, okay. Is the light being effect? They don't play up the light weakness enough. They don't like directly explain it. It's a thing that you're supposed to have inferred from them seeking out light in the public restroom of the thing and using flares and uh, the time that a spot, a flashlight is shined on the arm of someone who's infected and the dark veiny stuff sort of moves in, a, in reaction to it. Like that. Alone in the dark illumination was all about using light to uh, deal with the monsters, make them weak as you could shoot them. It was a cooperative. It was a really, really bad well, it game, was, one of the worst of its time. It was, this this mechanic was central to the uh, attempted reboot of the Alone in the Dark franchise that Activision did after they bought Infogrames, and yeah, um, uh, yeah, that was a game that it's had great so ideas. It's so obscene in Illumination that they make it the gimmick. Yeah, and. Because it's a co-op shooter, you are neither alone nor in the dark. Well, I mean, that's and defeats... I always bring that up because it exemplifies what was wrong with the game and that it was just so... None of it worked the way it should work. Using that teamwork would completely destroy any of the tension related to fighting these things because you could just have one person doing the flash, the light, and the other person doing the shooting. Like, it just breaks the game to do that. I mean, the whole game was broken before any players got near it. The job was done. I mean, Alan Wake always did this shit better, in my opinion. Alan Wake was good because it was like a race to get to the next lamppost, yes. which acted as this this safe island. And it, there was a nice amount of tension in that yeah. game. I, I should go back and play I, it again. I still maintain the best way to play that game is on the absolute highest difficulty setting. And and to just get, actually get that tension because that it's a really fun game, but on the you know more moderate settings, you just get too much ammunition. And if you are conservative and you really lock down uh, how you play, you can just wipe out all the enemies. And that doesn't feel like the the way to be playing it. Like it feels like you should have to be deciding when you you're just gonna gun it and run uh. and escape. Um, so that's that's how I I like to rock that. That's a super fun. It's one of my favorite video games. Uh, so yeah, uh, everybody's in this panic room. It's designed to be surrounded by lights. And Carnby warns that this isn't going to hold her off forever. And Daddy Dexter just sort of blows him off, saying that you know well, we've dealt with this kind of shit before. Uh, but Carnby suggests that hey, you know she's not really here for me. Remember, she's here for the dagger because you know I'm not like I guess super gross out totally covered in veins so i'm not interesting enough or, or or she can't see me now because of the radioactive botox injection i got i i legit don't know why they didn't just use that as the explanation just toss that in because that MacGuffin would have thrown it all away but whatever <laughs> uh so oh but but here's the thing is that you know, they're, they're, they're looking for the dagger 
And for something that is just so important, that is like the central MacGuffin of this film. Nobody seems to want to like hang on to it or remember where it is, keep track of it. Something so fucking important. Because it's downstairs still. <laughs> fucking idiots. So Daddy Dexter uh, taps Danny Trejo to go with him to retrieve the dagger. And Carnby insists that he go too, pointing out that, hey, I'm the one capable of sensing her presence. And, you know, all your equipment that you have isn't working now. Like, didn't they have the handheld ones? I'm confused. They collect the dagger, uh, but the lights go out. And so Danny Trejo expects a backup generator to kick in, but that takes a while. It seems like the witch is going to get in. But then the, the, the backup generator turns on and everything's getter, better again. Oh, but it's a bait and switch because it turns off and they're in trouble again. Oh, what hell? Stop toying with my emotions alone in the dark, too. And so Daddy Dexter gives the dagger to Carnby and sends him back to the panic room while he and Danny Trejo go to fix the generator in the basement. And while they're working on it, the witch attacks. Danny Trejo gets killed, and Daddy Dexter gets a metal pole stuck through his thigh, uh, which they do a very good job of making sure that you get a good four seconds of seeing the barb, like, metal rod thing that's eventually going to go through his thigh just shy of center frame. Uh, not, uh, not subtle. And upstairs, Natalie gets impatient, decides they need to go find her dad. So Karen B grabs Natalie and pulls her away from the group after everyone has gone to do this and warns her not to use her gun because of the tracer bullets. Oh, yeah. I don't know I what the this tracer means. Bullets. Uh, maybe it's the gun from the fifth element. Because that had bullets that you'd fire one bullet and the other bullets would trace to that bullet. Like, but like, is this the reason that Sinclair now dies in the next shot? Because she sees the witches start shooting her with what is, I believe, like a light machine gun. This is not a small weapon that she's carrying. I, I, it's practically mounted. I don't know what tracer bullets are. I don't know what tracer bullets are either. But it might be a. What was that gun website we looked at? <laughs> Maybe the answer is there. The Internet Firearms <laughs> Database. Uh, That'll tell us what trade. I'm not going to look it up because I've just been looking up. Because I was curious, do you think any movie website or blog interviewed anyone working on this movie before the movie came out like you would for a real movie? No, this was a straight no. video release. But one thing I did find out is that the Blu-ray version of this is a Best Buy exclusive. Oh, Oh, I did know that, actually. Yes, I at one point had heard that. Yeah, I don't know why. Um, I want to see why Dread Central has said Rejoice Alone in the Dark 2 on DVD. Well, I can, I can tell you uh, the original uh, one. I, 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 it had cover art that was distinctive because it's like a keyhole and the, you know, the, yeah. the, 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 the Spaniard from Spain through it in like silhouette and it's red and I remember seeing it in the DVDs at Circuit City when I worked there in 2005 and I never remember anybody buying it so not a big loss I think <laughs> well um <coughs> clicking on the link to the Rejoice one just takes us to uh 
it, a completely unrelated story, it seems. Oh. A DVD compilation Mad Monster Party of just kids' horror-themed videos. Okay. And, and who was that? Oh, wait, it's not even that. It's just a... I don't know what it is, actually. The Rankin-Bass classic Mad Monster Party. Oh, I guess it's its own film. From the creators of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Frosty the Snowman. I've never heard of it. What, what is it's happening? It's not Alone in the Dark 2, and I don't know why it's related to Alone in the Dark 2. <laughs> Maybe there's just, we haven't gotten the exposition yet. <laughs> yeah. The, I'm as confused now as I was watching the base film that this has spun off from. <laughs> I say base film because I think this has now got weird enough that we could say that this podcast takes place in the Alone <laughs> in the Dark two, in the Alone in the Dark two verse, not the Alone in the Dark universe, which is different because this is not related to fucking anything. This is like Troll Two. As Cardby and and uh, okay, no, so Cardby takes Natalie's gun. Then and like throws it towards the door out of the room that they're in. Holy shit! Sorry, I'm on Wikipedia just looking at reference links. And Dread Central's headline "Alone in the Alone in the Dark 2" trailer should have remained alone. You click on that, and it's just San Diego Comic Con 2012 invasion of the asylum. Get the haunting of Whaley House early. What is and happening it's just to about, the internet? Uh, I don't know. Is this Frog Fractions three? I think it is. It's FF3. <laughs> with a battle royale mode. So Carnby takes Natalie's gun, throws it towards the door, and the witch shows up, and she seems seemingly drawn to it. Or maybe she's drawn to the dagger. It's not really clear. She keeps getting closer until she stops approaching, and then she just leaves. And it's not clear if it's because of how Cardby was holding the dagger in his hands. And why was Cardby holding the dagger in his hands? I mean, there must have been a reason for it. Does it relate to... I don't understand anything that's happening. But downstairs, Daddy Dexter spends a lot of time rolling around in the ground in pain with his, you know, thigh speared. And he's holding a flare, trying to keep the witch at bay. And as Cardby and Natalie watch, he's killed, but... Clinging to the pull cord of the generator, as he's pulled away, it starts up and the lights come on, so they're all safe from the witch again. But, you know, their number's diminished because now we've lost uh, three people. Uh, after some... I have so little to say about any of this bullshit. And that's why I'm flying through this. Like, there's some of this shit yeah. that it's obvious to me that there's some talking points, but, yeah, we can motor a bit now. After sunrise, Natalie mourns Daddy Dexter with... Uh, um, Doyle and Carnby, the only two remaining people. Uh, and she despairs that the witch will be back for them. Uh, Doyle burns the corpse. And then they go to Abner's cabin. And Carnby confronts Abner, saying that they require a piece of the witch's heart to reactivate the dagger. And Abner says, well, they'll find what they need in her laboratory, insists he's still out the game. He then goes on to clarify for Natalie that her grandfather wasn't so much fighting the witch is kind of working in league with her in order to satisfy his own desires for occult knowledge. So, like, I think I understand now the story after having some, had some time to, like, think about it and watch it twice and written a seven-page synopsis covering every plot beat. I am Jesus. finally able to... Gr- not double-spaced either, just pointing that out. Uh, I, I'm finally able to grasp this shit. I think, and I get it, he was hunting her down, that's true, but he was doing it because he wanted to know shit about the occult, and then she used this to put him in her thrall. 
and no, right, and he became the bad guy. But nobody ever told Natalie that he was the bad guy, and that's why there's all of this sort of slow buildup, like to try and reveal that he was a bad guy in the end. It's, it's but they never effectively built the tension, or um, I don't know, used exposition. <laughs> what? Yeah. What they would say? Uh, here we're now getting all the act, all the exposition in late act two. <laughs> Uh, so the witch... It doesn't matter, because by this point, they'd completely lost me. Yeah. Uh, Granddaddy Dexter sacrificed Natalie's mother to the witch in exchange for the secrets of eternal life, because she was getting real mouthy about his interest in the occult. And the witch witch wasn't satisfied with this, so, uh, Granddaddy offered up Natalie in as the next thing. But, you know, she needed to, like, get ripe. So... 20, yeah. Uh, Natalie was three at the time, which, I mean... (laughs) Just, it's so... Why use that? Why? So 20 years later, the witch is now coming to collect. So Abner gives Carnby a box with some stuff from the old days. And Carnby is, like, suspicious because it seems like a small box without a whole lot of stuff. And it's not the specific box that Carnby says he should have, which is, like, a military box with a red cross painted on it and green. That's a very specific box that he's describing. And I'm assuming he had a vision. And I have to assume that because that was never, I don't think, shown up to this point in a vision, this box. Maybe it was. And the film was just shot so poorly that I didn't notice it. They put everything else, every other minor detail that is supposed to be relevant later in the middle of the fucking frame when it's first shown. I don't know why they skipped this. Abner deflects this by questioning Carnby's motivations and his own potential secret lust for power. Because, uh, again, we need to give Carnby a motivation in lieu of personality because he has neither. They look over a map together. And Carnby pulls out that piece of paper he done the impression on. <laughs> See? That Batman-like preparedness has paid off. No- noting the KE-12 that's on it that he could have just written on it because it's four characters. So Natalie is... And, th- and this is like, I guess, zones that people that Dexter had working to discover w- the location of the witch's... A lab? Because she has a lab? Don't really associate witches with labs, but... Okay, this witch has a laboratory. And... And they're, they're looking... I guess there were cells of people that Dexter had working. That's who those three people were before. That Their zone was... KE-12. And they find the map and where it corresponds. I don't understand. This is a whole lot of leap. Meanwhile, Natalie is just wandering around this strange person's house who has just revealed to her that her grandfather was actually the bad guy. And doesn't, but otherwise doesn't really know him. And this is normal and happening. None of us know anyone. Clearly. And she's spooked by some shadows, so she hides in a closet. 
And then it turns out to, no, it's just the other woman that lives there looking for a pair of jeans that she was mending. <laughs> and, but while she's... That's the story I want to see. I want to see the story of the mended jeans. I love this character, this woman that they, I want her. I want a movie about her because she's the only one that they've done anything to that makes me have interest in her. And she just sort of rolls her eyes about Abner having left these jeans here. Or something. But in the closet, Natalie uh, uncovers the specific box that Cardby was talking about and just happens to think that it's important. Despite, again, the significance of this box and how Cardby came to be aware of it is already unclear to me. And it's unlikely that she was in the room when it was discussed, although we're not shown her absence. (laughs) So maybe she was... But she recognizes the importance of this box. And in it, she finds a bunch of cups and the desired bit of the witch's heart that Carnby is looking for and is seemingly the reason that he's thinking of wanting that box. And what does she do with it? She immediately sticks it into its place of the dagger, which she happens to have. I'm trying to remember any of this. And it's not like, I don't remember her receiving the dagger in any scene prior to this. And that's kind of a weird problem because, like, at least in terms of the way this film is done, because they make a point of illustrating that the dagger has changed hands or justifying that the dagger has changed hands at multiple points because the dagger is, again, it's like the the central MacGuffin. And it's everything's driven forward in the plot because of the like location of this dagger. So why she has it now, I'm not sure. But she just slaps that shit in without really like like little fanfare or excitement. <laughs> and lightning shoots out the end of it. And Carnby and Abner come running into the room, commenting that you know, oh, the the witch is materializing in the daylight and. I, you know, okay, we'll, I guess we've established that she has a problem with light, so that would be significant, a thing to be concerned of. And Natalie's, like, surrounded by this energy field, which Carnby's bullets are bouncing off of. And uh, why is he shooting at her, at that, in this confined space with a weapon that, I mean, let's us Because the scene needed him to demonstrate that this was a force field, I guess. Well, yeah, because it's necessary because Abner needs to demonstrate that his bullets do work because here comes, here comes the other older woman prepared like, like some wartime British, you know, uh, uh, woman prepared for the Nazis to make landfall, right? Like, I, I, I think of her, I look at her and I think of the, the woman making the tea in the Crimson Permanent Assurance short that kicks off Monty Python's The Meaning of Life. <laughs> like, she's just there and she's ready for it when the shit happens with the thing that, you know... Yeah. With this chalice containing some fluid and a bunch of rifle rounds, 
for Abner's gun. Like, she's just there, and she's ready, and the only thing that's missing is a teabag hanging off of a hat. I love her so much. She's just amazing. And she's just ready for it and doesn't seem that concerned. <laughs> she's great. Uh, so Abner starts dipping his bullets in this, and and his guns do work because they're dipped in this. The bullets are dipped in this shit. I'm just so... This is all good and fine. <laughs> this is perfectly normal. <laughs> And uh, then uh, after the force field is down, uh, the knife is uh, thrown aside by Natalie on their instruction. And Abner shoots the reliquary, which has, I guess, bounced out or something. For a thing that's so important, they keep, you know, and that they seem to say that they need a lot. They sure do have this urgent desire to destroy them at every opportunity. So I don't get how that's happening either. But uh, Abner then sends the crew off to wherever their clue thing with the map indicated, and this takes them back to New York City proper and some abandoned-looking building, and they wander around for a while until finding a switch that powers a secret door. But it only opens wide enough for Natalie to fit, so she goes through. And inside, she finds the mechanism that controls the door, but it's, you know, stuck somehow. And rather than spending a bunch of time trying to figure that out, she decides to go deeper into this cave... I don't know what the fuck you'd call it. This uh, lab? Oh, it's it's a fucking laboratory, because this is a witch with a laboratory. Right, okay. And this leads her... Science witch. Uh... Yeah, and she uses the dagger as a guide, which now, again, as I was saying, the presence of the dagger always being important, and everyone's knowledge of where the dagger is is important, because it then cuts to Carnby looking in his bag for the dagger for reasons that aren't expressed, and making the observation that it's not there. Uh, fine. This is all fine. Uh, yeah, I think I'm... I refuse to be phased by this bullshit, mostly because I can't remember any of it still. So this leads her... Like, I I kicked back in ten minutes before the end, and I realized, oh shit, it's ten minutes before the end. And even then, when I was like, okay, gotta concentrate, gotta concentrate. Like I was reading a book while distracted, I was rewinding and having to look at it five fucking times. Because I kept wandering off. I couldn't concentrate on this shit. Mm -hmm. Well, she, uh... It's guided her to a heart in a jar. Like, and it's huge. It's a huge heart. <laughs> like, comically large. Like, <laughs> very, very, very large. Too large for the person that's been conveyed to be the witch to have ever possibly had in her body. Like, too large for any person, I would think. But big. Comically big. And then uh, the witch appears to her and requests the dagger. And uh, Natalie refuses and falls to the ground. And it's at this point that she observes a note on a corpse that's just there. And the note warns against pressing the red buttons. It's sort of a bit like a video game. Yeah. Uh, which you find the the note tells you gives you a puzzle and she uh disc- reads this note that wards against pressing the red buttons 
which she discovers to her horror that when she fell to the ground, she'd already done this with her hand. And these are like industrial workspace red buttons, like kill switch buttons. How did you not? Whatever. Fine. You're right. I'm not. This is all okay. (laughs) This is all okay. But this activates the door mechanism again, and it opens a bit further. So Carnby stops, starts going in. And in my head, I'm thinking, like, okay, well, so why wasn't she supposed to be pushing the buttons? But then it activates again, and the door closes tighter together, but only so tight as to ever so gently hold his ankle in place. <laughs> this is a door that appears to be about, I would say, a minimum of eight inches thick. With a mechanism that doesn't seem super reliable, and probably not the sort of thing that stops upon feeling the slightest tension. I do not understand why this has not completely shattered his leg. If this were a Saw movie, it would have. So, Saw movie would be great. Oh, God. The worst Saw movie is... So much better than this. So infinitely better than this. Which is the worst Saw movie, do you think? Uh... <sighs> Maybe Saw Six, but even then the ending's hilarious. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I'm, I'm with you on that. I think it probably is Six. I, my, in- actually, actually, these days Jigsaw. Oh, I haven't seen Jigsaw that, yet. That one is genuine. It's the first time that I've looked at it and said that's not even funny. Bad. That's just dreary shite. Yeah. Yeah, really not recommended. Jigsaw. So, uh, still probably yeah, still easily better than this actually. Uh, so. Doyle goes back to the car to get the jack uh, out of the trunk to free Carnby, which he does. Um, And then the door immediately closes and separates them. And it closes in the kind of way, you know, with the force that would lead me to think that, gosh, that that probably would have closed all the way the first time pretty pretty strongly had it not been for that incredibly sturdy uh, construction that is the human ankle. (laughs) <laughs> that prevented it from closing. Uh, but now with them it's okay. now with them separated, the witch appears and instantly kills Doyle. Like it was never an impediment to her progress. Carnby gets to the room with the heart, and there's an- another note on the corpse, or maybe it's the same note, but this is just like the flip side of the note warning about the buttons. And and Carnby, I guess, remarks upon, knows that this is Granddaddy Dexter here. And, and calls it revenge that the witch put on him, like he starved down here. <laughs> and, you know, I, it, here's just a, if you're ever on the production uh, crew, you know, working the props team for a film, and you have a corpse with a note on it, and you want that corpse to seem like it's been there for a long time, but also that the corpse wrote the note, the cobwebs have to exist over the note. You can't just you know, do all of your badass cobwebs <laughs> and then place the note on them. You got to maybe do some cobwebs. I mean, maybe then note then more cobwebs. Maybe maybe there's a cleaner <laughs> that you're really not paying very well. <laughs> oh, and uh, I'll do this letter and then I'm fucking off. <laughs> Natalie discovers that this is uh, says that this is a coded message but that it's 
like low level encryption, I think is the phrase she, she uses, or it's a low encryption, which is not the way I typically think of. I mean, yes, I guess it is technically encryption, but not really because that implies an algorithm. And this is really more cryptography, but whatever. An idiot wrote this script. They venture further in. Uh, yeah, the point is, is that, that it's not hard for her to figure out what it's supposed to say, but I don't think she actually even says what it says at this point. I, I don't I don't know why they didn't do that, because it should have been important to the plot. But they don't. Like, so many things they there don't is, tell us. There is no, there is no plot. <laughs> no, there's, there's so plot. So there is nothing there's of just nothing else. Well, yeah, fair point. Um and venturing further in, they light some wall torture, torches and discover the rock where Natalie's mother was sacrificed. And then they realize that, oh, this is not the witch's grave they were looking for. In fact, it's probably Natalie's mom's. Uh, and, well, I guess you could say Granddaddy Dexter's, too. Uh, and Carnby's condition seems to be worsening, so Natalie wants to give him another shot of adrenaline. But he holds her off for now. And he asks where the, the dagger is, because they have now apparently both again left the central MacGuffin of the film just fucking lying around. Like, as soon as she has her, you know, oh, I hit the button thing, well, she's dropped the dagger again, and they just leave it. It's not important until they need it, and now they have to go back and get it. So they do. And once it's retrieved, that big door starts opening again, and the witch has finally arrived, and it's our big, you know, last climactic confrontation. And so Carnby, standing up for himself, finds a hole in the foundation of the lab that they're in that breaks into a drainage pipe or whatever, and they escape through it. Fuck this movie. Stumbling through Central Park again, carrying the heart in a jar, Carnby, through his visions, realizes that they're being led somewhere, which turns out to be a rock wall that the dagger fits into a slot of and opens. This is all fine. Look, every, <laughs> nothing to see here. Nothing to see here. Carnby slices off a, a bit of the heart and sticks it in the dagger, but the witch is taking control of him. And uh, so Natalie then hits him with the adrenaline, and he recovers a bit. While she stabs the rock wall with the dagger and opens it, which causes the witch's soul to be drawn into her corpse inside. And she then stabs the corpse, corpse and the witch dematerializes. In daytime, back at Abner's cavern, Carnby and Abner are looking over Granddaddy Dexter's coded message. But Abner who also comments on how easy the cipher is to break and how he told Dexter to use something more complicated, realizes that the message did not say, kill the witch, free Natalie, as we were never told that it said, but the other way around. And Save the witch. Kill Natalie. And this may be what Natalie has actually done instead, following that advice. I don't understand. But they go outside to find her, and Abner realizes that it's really the witch in Natalie's body. 
and she takes Abner's gun and shoots him, asking for the dagger, which Abner says not to give her. Yeah, and I really did. I was doing my best to concentrate on this. Right? And even then, I was still slipping out of it. Well, the witch decides to play upon the very clearly established inner conflict that Cardby is feeling between his desire to do right and his lust for hidden occult knowledge that has been driving him forward throughout this entire story. And the witch tries to use that to seduce Carnby with an offer of occult power and I'm pretty sure anal. Because <laughs> the way she puts it is like, you and I could do things she would never do. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. all right. Like, would she never track down all this occult stuff? Because she seems pretty tied into that. I'm only led to presume it's Adel because of the way you're, like, climbing on him. Uh, <laughs> she wants Carnby to stab... Uh, <laughs> to stab her heart to kill Natalie's soul, which will then let the witch take full control of the body. But he tosses it away. And as she goes to retrieve it, he gets up and drowns Natalie in Abner's cleaning barrel. Yeah. There it is. Full on Comstock. It pays off. Uh, Abner reflects that Granddaddy Dexter had known that the only way to actually kill the witch was to kill Natalie. So the instructions were true. It wasn't like a trick. It was just that that was how it was going to work. They were steps. It wasn't like, free the witch and this will kill Natalie. It was free the witch, comma, then kill Natalie. (laughs) Uh, While Cardby, figuring that being temporarily dead should be good enough for this whole thing, goes ahead and attempts to resuscitate Natalie. And Abner suggests repeatedly that the dagger would be more more effective, reminding him that it kills the soul and not the body. And I guess I'm not sure how that helps in this situation. Yeah, again, just presented to what you're thinking, but you're saying to just finish her up? Right, but it's it's the thing that the witch wanted him to do in the first place, but it's a different target. Like, I guess, what, is he going to... Is is he playing trauma center? (laughs) (laughs) And he's using his special powers, his connection with the witch, to find the witch's soul, to find the spot on the body where the witch's soul is hiding so he can stab that part with the knife. I don't know, but it does work. And Natalie's not just immediately revived, but seems totally fine because she just slaps him and then tells him never to do that again. Like, because that's a line that people have done and a thing people have done in movies, other movies where people thought that it was cool and it wasn't cool then, (laughs) but at least it was executed in a way that these guys thought it was cool. (laughs) So they did it. And then the three work together to carry Abner back inside And in the only consistent thing in this entire fucking movie, they leave the goddamn dagger outside. (laughs) 
Yep, so that cartoon yellow glow can go on it. And we get a little witchy laugh and gets mercifully some fucking credits. And that is Alone in the Dark 2. Did you like it or not? <laughs> uh, these I'm, I'm so... I'm looking forward to the third in the name of the King film, actually. Yeah. I really am now. I'm, I... You're the only person who's ever <laughs> said that, ever, in the history of ever. Who, who wasn't in, in, possibly engaged in, or maybe implicated in criminal behavior at some point. Maybe that. Yeah, like that's the, Maybe that. the only possible, like in a world where somebody laundered money, uh, uh, as uh, it used this film as a method to launder money. That's the only person I could think of is the person who wanted to launder money. Uh, but yeah, no, I, this is such a train wreck. And I guess I feel like we've had it really good lately to some extent, just cause we have, we've had some, yeah. Yeah. And we haven't done bowl in a while. And it was almost refreshing how bad it was. And it just, <laughs> yeah. I just, I, it was too boring. It committed that great sin. Yeah. It couldn't hold my attention. There were, we've had bad movies. We've had over ball movies that could keep me gripped better than I, this. And, I think the, the yeah. how poorly formed it was and how lacking in exposition it was, the... Badness of that may kept me always asking, "Why did you do this? What are you doing? Is this ever leading to somewhere?" And I know in my heart what the answer is, but at least that kept me invested enough. Just at, at, at how many missteps they were making, that if they had been a little more competent, I think anywhere along the way, uh, it absolutely would have had the same effect on me of, of completely boring me. Um, it because there's no energy in any of the Rick Yoon is just uh, he's a, a wet blanket just yeah nothing there but just nothing no resonance no emotional there's no gravitas to anything yeah uh Lance Henriksen is doing what he can with what he's got the uh he's got nothing yeah. the the woman again like i say that that bit woman who shows it for two scenes is to me the most entertaining uh, character in this film, and she doesn't have to have development. She's just there to be funny, and so she is. She, and she's great. She doesn't need to. Yeah, like she at least can elicit, I guess, from some people, some emotional response. And I think the intended emotional response, um, if yeah. not on the the level that the people who made this were trying to provoke. I don't think. Oh, they they thought people would be like. Tears in their eyes, rip roaring laughter. Yeah. They were like, "We, we right here have made a comedy character worthy of Russia." And out. as someone who, God, uh, you know, I, I would be a liar if I didn't say deadpan, comedic drops kill for me. Hey, that is absolutely my kind of comedy. But uh, and that's a big reason why uh, I love Nathan for you so much. Um, as a show, which I'm going to remind you again, you need to watch. Okay. And uh, yeah, so that that worked f for me, but um, just because I saw what they were doing, and and I saw these people who were capable of of doing it, and that play, and I didn't actually laugh, <laughs> but I I uh, appreciated. 
It, it, the thing is that there's no horror, there's no tension in this film to relieve. So comic relief. Yeah, I was thinking that as I was watching it. I was like, what are they, what are you going for when you make something in the horror genre that's clearly not scary? Mm-hmm. What do you think you're doing? And uh, if I'm not mistaken, didn't this get like a PG-13 rating? Like, Probably. there's no on-screen yeah, violence. It, uh... No, there really isn't. There is... Holy shit, yeah. It's tamer than an episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? Yeah, I mean, the, there's guns being fired. Yeah, there's at least a sense of threat in a show like Goosebumps or Are You Afraid of the Dark? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, that's, I mean, this just... It's a strange movie that I don't, you know, could never, ever, ever tell someone to watch. But in the bowl canon, I find it kind of curious in that... Because he doesn't seem so directly involved, right? I don't feel his hand on the till, uh, you know, working the or, yeah. or working the rudder and on this one at all. No, no. I mean, IGN said it was better than the first one. Yeah, I was trying to look up shreds of anything because this movie is just so nothing, throwaway, forgotten. I like to see if there are relics of its existence outside of the movie itself online. Like I said, most of the talk about it. And it wasn't even good talk has been deleted and replaced. But IGN at one point said it was at least... They said it didn't need to be made and the first one was atrocious. But they said this one, damned it with frank praise. It was at least better than that one. Which I don't know that I can agree with. And and part of that is... I simply can't remember. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to imagine that this is better, though. Yeah, it's hard to believe this is better than anything. I know it is. I've seen worse things than this. Yeah. But it's still hard to believe. Um, all I know is this movie is so unremarkable, so forgotten, so small and insignificant that we actually have a shot of seeing this podcast mentioned under its reception page on Wikipedia. Oh, snap. I was, I thought you were going to say that... Uh... Um, it's so bad. It's it's so boring. There's so little in it that we managed to talk about it for over two hours. I mean that as well. <laughs> Jesus, for fuck's sake. Uh, well, I'm done. What are we doing next time, Jim? Uh, Ready Player oh, One by your command. Oh, that's right. Well, you know, you have suggested we do Ready Player One, and I'm like, well, I'm never going to watch it unless it's for. Now, a in thing, fairness, so. you had suggested doing Rampage, and I was thinking, gosh, I don't know, we've had it too good for too long. Um, and, and Well, then this happened. Yeah. I mean, not that I... From what I... I'm, I'm open... I'm keeping an open mind with Ready Player One. Um, just... And, I mean, hell, we'll talk about this, but the, the book does not fill me with feelings of happiness. And uh, I was not like psyched about the, this movie being made, but it is it's Spielberg, uh, and and that's not like a guarantee of success, but it does at least imply a standard. So, there's that. All right. Yeah. <laughs> well, with that that hype ready <laughs> right. for the next next episode two weeks time. Um, if you do watch them beforehand. I'm sorry if you did that for yeah, this one. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, and, you know, it'll be ready player one. And, 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 and if you watched it and, and, and you had an epileptic reaction, that, that like, if I'd known, I would have said something. I really would have. It, it, it's yeah, bad. it's a miserable, miserable nightmare for even under the best circumstances, let alone if you've got 
uh, issues like that. So yeah, that'll do. Yep. That'll do. I'm ready to just kick this away and forget about its existence, just like the first one. <laughs> um, and we'll be back ready to play one. So follow Conrad on Twitter, Conrad Zimmerman, at Conrad Zimmerman. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.